This Jewish History Podcast is sponsored Li'ilui Nishmas in loving memory of Danny Savitsky, Daniel Barnett, Ben Yehuda, the Amy. May his soul have a spiritual ascendance in heaven. Joshua, the son of Nun, was the undisputed leader of the Jews after the passing of Moses. Even during Moses' lifetime, Joshua played an important role as Moses' aide and confidant and protege. He led the war effort and vanquished the Amalekites immediately after the Exodus. He was Moses' right-hand man in his lifetime. He never departed from his side. In fact, when Moses goes up the mountain, Mount Sinai to get the Torah, for the duration of those 40 days, Joshua is encamped at the foot of the mountain, away from the rest of the nation, away from the general camp of the people of Israel, and he joins Moshe as they come back to the camp and find the Jews celebrating the golden calf. Joshua was one of the 12 leaders of the nation, tasked with the responsibility of scouting out the land and together with Caleb, was one of the two righteous spies who did not slander the land. When Moses asked the Almighty to choose a successor for him after he passes, the Almighty instructed him to select Joshua, a man of spirit, to designate him and to strengthen him as his successor. After Moses passes, Joshua immediately leads the conquest of the land of Canaan, of the land of Israel. He faces off the seven mighty nations and the 31 different kings of the city-states who are united against the invading Jewish people. They cross the Jordan miraculously. They have a covenant at the twin mountains of Mount Ebal and Mount Grisim. They conquer the fortified city of Jericho in a miraculous fashion. Eventually, they subdue the indigenous people of the land and divide up the land and apportion it according to the tribes of Israel. Joshua's accomplishments are indeed robust, but my sense is that unlike the subject of the previous episode, unlike Moses, his story is relatively unknown. So let's dig into his story. Let's find out more about this great hero of Jewish history, Joshua Yehoshua, the leader of the Jews after Moses. Joshua makes his first appearance in chapter 17 of Exodus. The Jewish people are amidst the 50-day intermediate period between the Exodus and the revelation at Sinai, and a lot has already happened since the Jewish people left Egypt. Of course, seven days after they leave, there's the splitting of the sea. They're surrounded by their enemies. The Almighty makes a miracle. The sea splits. They go into the water. The Egyptians follow suit unwisely, and the water crashes down upon them. After that amazing miracle, the Jews erupt in uproarious, delightful, exuberant song. Soon afterwards, the Jewish people arrive in the city of Mara. There, the waters are bitter. And after three days of thirst, Moses is shown a stick. He throws it into the water, and he thereby sweetens the water. Their food runs out. Remember, they left Egypt. They had matzah. Sometime later, the food runs out. The Almighty provides them with magical manna descending from heaven each morning, six days a week with a double portion on Friday. In the evening, they have quail to eat. In fact, they take a vial of manna and they place it for posterity in storage to remember for eternity that God provided food for the nation to eat. Again, the nation runs out of water, and they get so distressed, they threaten to stone Moses if he doesn't solve their predicament. And God instructs him to strike a rock, which spews forth water for the entire nation. And this is not to be confused with a similar event retold in the book of Numbers, where Moses is instructed to speak to a rock. Instead, he strikes it. This is the first time where Moses is told to strike the rock. And some of the commentaries explain that that's why he made the mistake. 
The second time he was told to speak to the rock, but he remembered the first time where he was told to hit the rock. He conflated the two and he hit the rock instead of speaking to it. And finally, the nation of Amalek, the descendants and spiritual heirs of Esau, the eternal foes of the Jewish people, they launch an unprovoked surprise attack against the nation. And the Torah in chapter 17, verse 8 of the book of Exodus, describes the Jewish counteroffensive. Amalek came and battled Israel in Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose people for us and go do battle with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with a staff of God in my hand. Joshua did as Moses said to him to do battle with Amalek, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur ascended to the top of the hill. It happened that when Moses raised his hands, Israel was stronger. And when he lowered his hand, Amalek was stronger. Moses' hands grew heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat in it. And Aaron and Hur supported his side, one on this side and one on that side, and he remained with his hands in faithful prayer until sunset. Joshua weakened Amalek and its people with the sword's blade. This is the description of the very first war of the Jewish people almost immediately after the Exodus. Moses is on top of the mountain with his hands in the air in prayer. Joshua is leading the effort down below and they strike and smite and weaken Amalek with the sword's blade. Afterwards, Hashem said to Moses, write this as a remembrance in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I shall surely erase the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. Moses built an altar and he said, for the hand is on the throne of God. Hashem maintains a war with Amalek from generation to generation. This first war waged by the Jewish people typifies the kind of war that Moses and subsequently Joshua are going to wage. Who led the war efforts? It was a dual front war, and therefore there were two people who led the efforts. Moses goes up to heaven, and he goes there to pray, and to inspire the Jewish populace and the Jewish fighters to pray as well. And that's a critical component of this war. When Moses' hands are up, Jewish people are winning. When his hands are down, well, Amalek is winning. That's like the spiritual side of the war. In fact, in the Kabbalistic sources, it talks about that Esau's angel came and was waging Moses at that dimension. And then there was a physical war which was led by Joshua. There's the spiritual world and there's the spiritual war. There's the physical world and then there is the physical war on the physical plane, and that is led by Joshua. This is kind of interesting, that this nation at this juncture in time is a nation that recognizes that these wars are not standard wars where a nation meets each other in the battlefield. Yes, there is an implementation of the spiritual war that's done with swords, but ultimately Moses, even though he's not involved in the actual combat, At the top of the mountain, his activity on the spiritual plane is going to affect the results on the physical plane, but that was led by Joshua. It's interesting, the Ramban tells us that this is the first war that the Jewish people undertake as a nation, and you know what it's going to be the last war that the Jewish people have to undertake as a nation? That too will be a confrontation with Amalek. And just like in the first war, Joshua weakened Amalek with the sword in the final battle, the final showdown between Jacob and Esau, with the Jewish people and Amalek is going to pit these two foes against each other. That's going to be the last war as it was the first war. And the first war's results are a harbinger of the last war's result. Afterwards, once the battle is over, God tells Moses to convey an important message in the ears of Joshua that the existence of Amalek 
the existence of this eternal enemy of the Jewish people, it detracts from the throne of God. And in each generation, this battle will resurface. Why does God tell Moses to go tell us to Joshua? The answer, as we know now, even though Moses didn't know it at the time, is that God knew that Joshua is going to be the next leader of the Jewish people, and therefore this critical bit of information must be transferred to him. That's the first appearance of Joshua in the Torah. His next appearance is several weeks later, and again we read about it in the book of Exodus. This time it's a chapter 27, verse 13. And this is telling us about Moses' preparation to ascend the mountain to spend 40 days in heaven, in the spiritual realm, with God, getting the Torah, bringing it down to this world, and delivering it to the Jewish people. Moses and his attendant Joshua arose, and Moses ascended the mountain of God. Moses is going up Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, to receive the Torah. Joshua, well, he's not allowed to join. Moses alone ascends the mountain. But Joshua accompanies Moses as far as he could go. Once he reaches the point where he can go no longer, he pitches his tent and he waits for 40 days for the duration of Moses' time in heaven. Joshua does not budge from that point, from that border past which he cannot cross. Why did Joshua travel with Moses even though he could not complete the journey? Moses, after all, is going to heaven. Joshua cannot join. So why is Joshua joining the journey to begin with? So Rashi quotes from the Talmud and tells us something very interesting about Joshua's character. Joshua was a student and students accompany their teacher. And even though Joshua could not go to the destination, he was traveling because traveling with Moses was important in its own right, even if the destination was inaccessible for Joshua. And Joshua pitched his tent and he remained there for 40 days. Why? Because when Moses comes down the mountain in chapter 32 of Exodus, he meets Joshua before they go together to the camp. And that teaches us, continues Rashi, that Joshua remained at the foot of the mountain for the duration of the 40 days. This is really interesting. Not only did Joshua accompany his teacher on a journey that he could not complete, but he remained there. He didn't go back to the rest of the camp. He wasn't privy to the decisions that led to the golden calf. He was there by himself in his tent waiting for Moses to descend. Everyone knew that Moses was slated to be there for 40 days. And we know the golden calf fiasco happened because they thought 40 days were over. It was really only 39 days. There was a miscalculation. But regardless, the fact that Joshua remained there for the duration is incredibly noteworthy. He could have gone back to his family. Maybe even he should have gone back to his family to be there until Moses is coming. He knows Moses is not coming back for 40 days. Why does he remain there for the duration of the 40 days? And the answer, I think, demonstrates the attitude of a committed student. He didn't want to miss Moses for even a second. He wasn't willing to take the chance of leaving because if he leaves Moses' side, there may be a second that he's not accompanying Moses. And we find out later on in the Torah, the Torah testifies about Joshua that he did not depart his teacher's side for a millisecond. For the duration of the Torah, for 40 years from the Exodus until the death of Moses, Joshua is next to him, his right-hand man, never departing from him, not even for a moment. Joshua, the disciple par excellence of Moses, is unwilling to depart from him, unwilling to miss even a second of time with him. He remains at the foot of the mountain. Asks the Talmud a very interesting question. What did Joshua eat for those 40 
days. We know Moses didn't eat, not bread, not water for 40 days. Well, what about Joshua? What did he do? Well, the whole nation was eating manna, but the manna, that came in the camp. Joshua is now away from the camp. He's by himself at the foot of the mountain. What is Joshua eating for 40 days? And the Talmud in the book of Yoma, on page 76a and b, it's where the page turns, says something very interesting. It says, Joshua also got a delivery of manna specially designated for him at the foot of the mountain. But you know how much manna he got? He got manna equivalent to the same amount of manna that went for the whole nation in the camp. If there was, I don't know, five tons of manna every day delivered to the to the camp to all 600,000 Jews, that's exactly how much manna Joshua himself got by himself at the foot of the mountain by Mount Sinai. And the obvious question is, why did Joshua end up with so much manna when he's waiting for Moses at the foot of the mountain? And one of the answers is, is that the reason why the Jewish people got the manna was because the Jewish nation was worthy of manna. And it was like a collective privilege, merit of the Jewish people that if you're part of this collective, you got manna delivered because you're part of the collective. What would happen if some random Joe decided that they're not part of the Jewish people? They walk out, they start heading back to Egypt, whatever it is, they leave. Would they have manna? They wouldn't. Because only the Jewish nation is worthy of having having manna. And so long as someone is part of that collective whole, they get manna even if they personally are not on their own meritorious to deserve the manna. Joshua leaves the camp. He's on his own. Will he end up with food? He is no longer part of the camp. He left the camp. He's no longer part of the collective whole. He's on his own. Now, his food is going to be delivered solely based on his own personal merit. Joshua, one of the giants of Jewish history, is someone that if you equate his merit, it's equal to the entirety of the Jewish people. Just like we saw last episode, the Talmud says about Moses, that Moses was equal to all 600,000 Jews combined. Joshua too was the same. And therefore he received enough manna on his own merit to equal the amount given to the whole nation. This is one of the themes that we're going to see throughout Joshua's story. He is very much interlinked and interconnected with Moses. He doesn't leave him for a second. And it's, of course, the greatest privilege to be with Moses and to kind of ride on Moses' coattails. But of course, you know, that's not the kind of guy you want to replace. There's no greater shoes to fill than to be the leader that comes after Moses. And this is kind of the tension that we see in this story. On one hand, he's almost equal to Moses. He's so similar to Moses. He, everything Moses knows, he, he learns right away. He's right there privy to every decision, to every bit of Torah study, to everything. He's there next to Moses. But Moses is the greatest man that ever lived, and Joshua, he's not quite the same thing. So what happens after Moses descends from the mountain? Chapter 32, verse 17, we read something very interesting. Moses comes down the mountain. Meanwhile, in the camp... The Jewish people are celebrating the golden calf. Of course, the greatest debacle of our history. And Joshua sees Moses, but he also hears what's going on in the distance in the camp. Joshua heard the uproarious sounds of the people. And he says to Moses, there's a cry of war in the camp. This sounds like war. We better rush over to find out what's going on, to get involved, save the Jewish people. They were attacked by someone else. Maybe Amalek came back. Maybe a different nation attacked them. That's how Joshua diagnoses the situation and the sounds. And Moses responds in the next verse. But Moses answers, this is not the sound shouting victory, nor the sound shouting defeat. 
It's the sound of revelry that I hear. It's a very interesting exchange we have over here. Joshua hears some noise, and he posits that he hears the sound of war coming from the camp. Now, we all know, because we've read the story, that it's not the sound of war. It's the sound of revelry and celebration of the golden calf. And indeed, Moses corrects him. It's the sound of distress. It's other sounds. It's not war. But I find it really interesting that the Torah, when it records this episode, it tells us what Joshua initially thought, his erroneous assessment of the situation. Why is it necessary for the Torah in the book of Exodus to relay the incorrect initial assessment of Joshua? And I think maybe we could find the answer in the Midrash. The Midrash tells us that Moses hears the sound and he hears Joshua tell him this this is the sound of war. What's the proper relationship of Moses and Joshua, the role of teacher and charge? Moses says, this person is going to be a great leader, maybe even the leader of the Jewish people after I pass. It's important for him to know what sound is war and what sound is revelry. The role of the teacher is to prepare their disciples for what lies ahead of them. Joshua was destined to lead the nation, and Moses is positioning him and priming him for the role, which includes knowing to differentiate between the various types of sounds and cries. And that's why I think the exchange is very illustrative, A, of the relationship that Moses had with Joshua, B, about how Joshua was raised. He was taught, he was trained by Moses. Moses was constantly adjusting his behavior to make sure that he got it right. And therefore, even though this verse was incorrect, Joshua was wrong. There was no war. The Torah tells it to us to show us how a teacher and a student interact. I believe there's a second instance where we see Moses correcting Joshua. Joshua says something. Moses says, no, 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 we're not going to do this. We're going to do that. And what I found, or at least according to my research, I cannot think of any other instance in the Torah where Moses has to correct the account or the statement of someone else. Only twice, both to Joshua. The first, like we said, in his assessment of the sounds of the golden calf revelry. And second, in the chapter 11 of the book of Numbers. In chapter 11, we read, it begins with a series of complaints by the nation. And after Moses lays out his grievances, he tells God, I alone cannot carry this entire nation. It's too heavy for me. So the mighty tells him, okay, gather 70 elders. I'm going to confer some of the spirit that is on you to them. I'm going to make them prophets. And they'll help you. They'll bear some of the burden of the people. You shouldn't bear it alone. Moses complains too much for him. God says, okay, we're going to spread out the responsibility, distribute it amongst 70 elders besides for you. Now, what's the problem? The problem is, is that there are 12 tribes and there's only 70 slots for elders. If you do the math, 72 is divisible by 12. But if you only have 70 elders and you have 12 tribes to choose from, there's going to be two tribes that end up with only five, whereas the other 10 tribes are going to end up with six elders on this council. So how do you solve the problem without any acrimony? How do you remove any allegations of unfairness? So Moses selects six qualified members from each tribe. And he ends up, of course, with 72 potential candidates. And then he takes 72 papers. And on 70 of them, he writes the word zakain, meaning elder. And what does he do? He's going to take all these 70 people put all the papers in a hat, 
Let them choose it. And then it wasn't Moses who made the decision who are going to be the elders. It was God. It's a fair system to select these prophets, these people who are going to be the body of leaders that God told him to select. Immediately upon the nomination, these elders are going to be imbued magically with prophecy. The way Rashi explains, it's like a candle. If you have a candle and an unlit candle, you take the lit candle, you touch it to the unlit candle, and then the unlit candle becomes lit, but the lit candle does not lose any of its light. Similarly, Moses is like the lit candle. He's going to take the 70 unlit candles. He's going to light them all. They'll all, all have prophecy, but he is not going to lose his prophecy one iota. However, there were two candidates, one named Eldad and one named Medad, who in their humility were so certain that they weren't worthy of the job, they decided to not join the selection process near the Mishnah, near the tabernacle, near the tent of meeting. Instead, they remained in the camp. So in actuality, all you had is 70 elders going there to pull out papers from the hat. But the truth is that two other candidates picked out blank papers. So you have these two people amidst the entire camp, Eldon and Medar, are instantly imbued with prophecy. And they start prophesying in front of everyone. And they say something very startling to all those who hear it. Moses will die, they prophesy, and Joshua will lead us into the land. This obviously causes a tremendous ruckus in the camp. There's two new prophets, and they're talking about the demise of Moses in front of everyone. And you have to remember, this is at the time where everyone assumes that Moses is about to lead them into the land. So what to do? So in verse 28 of chapter 11, Joshua intervenes. And Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' attendant from his youth, he spoke up and said, My Lord Moses, restrain them. These people are dangerous. They're saying all these things. They're talking about you dying. We have to incarcerate them. We cannot allow them to roam around in the camp. Again, Joshua is assessing a situation. You see something, and these two people, granted they're prophets, but they start saying things that are so offensive to Moses. And Joshua, who is, of course, standing up for Moses' honor, he right away says, makes a suggestion. These people are terrible. They're bad. We have to find a solution for them. They can't be allowed to just go prophesy in front of everyone. And how does Moses respond? Vayomerlo Moshe. But Moses said to him, are you being zealous for my sake? Are you sticking up for my honor? If only all the nation of God were prophets. You're complaining about these people, they're prophets. I'm happy they're prophets. And in fact, I only wish that everyone else would be prophets like they are. And again, we see this same pattern. Joshua proposes something and Moses corrects him and points out the flaw in Joshua's reasoning. And from my recollection, these are the only two times recorded in the Torah where Moses corrects someone. And I think it's very illustrative of the proper relationship between a teacher and those under his tutelage. The next significant event in Joshua's life, as recorded in the Torah, is the episodes of the spies in chapter 13 and chapter 14 of the Book of Numbers. We're a little bit more than a year removed from the Exodus. The tabernacle is built. Everyone's under the impression that the conquest of Canaan under the leadership of Moses is imminent. But the people insist that before we enter Canaan, we should send a reconnaissance mission. Go scout out the land, find out the vulnerabilities. Before we enter, we know how to wage this war successfully. So Moses yields to the will of the people. He selects 12 great men, one from each tribe, to undertake this mission, and including Joshua amongst these 12 from the tribe of Ephraim. And the Torah tells us that this mission was a colossal 
disaster. After 40 days of scouting the land, they come back to the Jewish people, they report their findings, and they say, well, while it is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey, the people are huge, they're fierce, we felt like grasshoppers compared to them, the cities are heavily fortified, they remind the Jewish people of the terrifying Amalekites that are situated in the land, it's a land that consumes its inhabitants, they're stronger than us, we can't attack them, and everyone freaks out. And in response to this assault on the land, Joshua and Caleb, the representatives from the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Ephraim, they argue, no, no, we surely can ascend and conquer and settle the land. If God's with us, we are unstoppable. We'll carve them up like a loaf of bread. We have nothing to worry about. But the people worry nonetheless. They begin wailing They complain to Moses and Aaron, if only we died in Egypt, maybe we should go back there. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than to be slaughtered in Canaan. They gang up on Moses and Aaron. They threaten to stone them. And they only stop when the presence of God descends upon the camp. Parenthetically, the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, page 104b, tells us that the Jewish people cried that night. That night, says the Talmud, was the ninth day of the Jewish month of Av. And the Almighty said to the Jewish people, oh, you're crying for nothing? I'm going to give you a very, very good reason to cry. There are going to be innumerable tragedies that befall you on the ninth day of Av. Most significant, of course, is the destruction of the first and of the second temple. And this is actually measure for measure. The Jewish people spend the night wailing, oh, what's going to be? We don't want to go. We don't want to enter the land. And therefore, it is fitting that on that same date, they were to be expelled from the land that they cried earlier that they don't want to enter. And the aftermath of this episode is severe. Initially, God wants to destroy the nation, start from scratch. But thanks to Moses' intervention, he agrees to lessen the punishment. He's going to prolong the wandering in the wilderness 40 years for the 40 days of the scouting expedition. All the adults alive at the time are going to die in the wilderness. They're not going to be privy to the conquest of Canaan, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb will inherit the portions in the land that were reserved for the other 10 spies. And I think this episode is another notch in Joshua's belt indicating his resolve and his readiness for leadership. And indeed, a few chapters later, in chapter 27, we read about how Moses sought a successor. And Moses spoke to God, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and who may go in before them and who may lead them and who may bring them in that the congregation of the Lord be not as sheep which have no shepherd. Moses is realized that his time as leader is going to come to an end relatively soon and he implores God to not leave the Jewish people leaderless to appoint someone who is able to fulfill the tremendously difficult task of managing the Jewish people. I think it was Golda Meir who told one of the U.S. presidents, maybe it was Nixon or something like that, that uh, you think it's hard to manage your cabinet or whatever. I have a nation of six million people, and each one of them thinks they could do a better job than I could. (laughs) Yeah, being the leader of the Jews is not exactly a walk in the park. So God says, I will listen to you and I will give you the right man for the job. Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is spirit and lay your hand upon him. Moses sought a leader for the Jewish people in his model. Someone who will bear the nation, someone who will suffer with each person according to their own eccentricities. And the Midrash tells us that when Moses asked God 
for a leader, he actually had some candidates in mind. He wanted his own sons to take over his leadership position. And the Almighty says to him, no, Joshua is a better candidate. Why? So the Midrash records the dialogue between Moses and God. The Holy One, blessed is he, said back to Moses, quoting a verse in Proverbs, he who tends a fig tree will enjoy its fruit. Your sons sat for themselves. They weren't occupied with Torah. Joshua served you more and gave you much honor. And he would come early and leave late to the council chamber, to the house of scholarship, to the academy. He would arrange the benches and roll out the mats. Since he served you with all his strength, he is worthy to tend to Israel. Take Joshua, the son of Nun. Moses thought that his children were fit for the job. But God said that Joshua is worthier. He never stopped studying. He never stopped tending to you. He never stopped learning from you and according to you honor. He was the first in the door and the last to leave. And he even did the menial job of arranging the tables and organizing the benches and rolling out the mats. That was not beneath his dignity. He was someone like you who was selfless, someone who had humility, someone who didn't say, well, you know, some jobs are beneath me. Such a person who doesn't hold himself in such high regard, that is someone who is worthy of leadership. He is someone who could potentially be totally committed to his constituents. And I think it's interesting to study what transpired after Joshua was selected. How did Moses nominate Joshua as his successor? What did Moses do still in his lifetime to show the nation that Joshua is the next leader? Also, what messages did Moses impart to Joshua to prepare him for the tall task ahead? So the first thing we read, again, this is in chapter 27 of the book of Numbers, God said to Moses, select Joshua, the son of Nun, a man of spirit, and lay your hand upon him. What does this mean? So Rashi quotes from the Talmud. What God is telling Moses is, first of all, you have to convince him. You would imagine that Joshua was eager for the job, but he wasn't. In fact, all great leaders are not eager for their job. They have to be convinced. But in addition, you have to lay your hand upon him. This is where the idea of smicha comes, of ordination, of conferring a stature that you have and giving it to your disciple. Lay your hand upon him. What does that mean? Rashi tells us, hire for him an interpreter. The way they used to give lectures, you know, Moses wasn't known for his very loud voice. He would whisper the lecture to what's called a maturgamon to an interpreter. This is essentially someone that had a very loud, booming voice, and he would just say over Moses' words to the whole nation that they would hear him. But this meant, essentially, give him a microphone. Give him, empower him to be able to spread his message. Why? Why is it important when Moses is still alive that Joshua has a platform to speak upon? Because otherwise, continues Rashi, after you pass and Joshua's the next leader, people are going to say, are you really the leader? How come I never heard about you when Moses was around? And they'll reject you. And this, I think, shows us something really interesting, that had Moses not given him this important role, the nation would have rejected Joshua. This is a very hard people to rein in. Even someone like Joshua, hand-selected by God, primary disciple of Moses, the, the someone who was designated by Moses, had he not had an official capacity with an interpreter giving lectures to the nation, he would not have been accepted. That's what God tells him. Realize what the nation is, stiff-necked people. They don't like being led. They're giving you a hard time. Imagine what they're going to do to your successor. Give him the best chance that he's got. Let him start giving lectures under your watch. Place your hand upon him. What does Moses do? Moses does even more than he is asked. Verse 23 we read, Moses lay his hands upon him 
and commissioned him as the Almighty had spoken through Moses. God said, lay a hand. Moses laid both hands upon him. He was gracious in doing even more than was asked from him. God said, lay one hand, give him support. Moses says, I'm going to, I'm going to give him even more support, even though initially I wanted my sons. This is the, my successor. I'm going to do everything I can to make this transition as seamless as possible and give Joshua the best chances for success. Moses' support and strengthening of Joshua continued for the duration of his lifetime and intensified at the very end of Moses' life. On the last day of Moses' life, he gathers the entire nation for one last speech. And we read it in chapter 31 of the book of Deuteronomy. Moses went and spoke to the and spoke these words to all of Israel. He said to them, I am a hundred and twenty years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. For Hashem has said to me, you shall not cross this Jordan. Hashem your God, he will cross before you. He will destroy these nations from before you and you shall possess them. Joshua, he shall cross over before you as Hashem had spoken. Hashem will do to them as he did to Sichon Renod, the kings of the Amorites and their land, which he destroyed. And Hashem will deliver them before you and you shall do to them according to the entire commandment that I've commanded you. Be strong, be courageous, don't be afraid and do not be broken before them. For Hashem your God, it is he who goes before you. He will not release you, nor will he forsake you. Moses is comforting the nation. I'm going to die today but you'll be in good hands. God will be with you as much as he was during my time. And Joshua will be as reliable a leader as I was. And then Moses summons Joshua and said to him, before the eyes of all of Israel, be strong and courageous, for you shall come with his people to the land that Hashem swore to the forefathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it. Hashem, it is he who goes before you, He will be with you. He will not release you, nor will he forsake you. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. On his last day, Moses reassures and inspires the nation and reassures and inspires Joshua. Just as God treated us when I was around, he will do the same for you. This maybe is a lesson for transitions, for succession plans. That is very important for the legend who is moving on to inspire and to give strength to the person who is taking on the total responsibility of following the great leader. And we see this theme repeating itself again and again, strengthening, inspiring. Joshua could do it. Joshua will do it. The Almighty will be with them all the way. If you read this story critically, you'll notice a little nuance, and Rashi picks up on this. Moses tells Joshua in front of the whole nation, Be strong and courageous, for you shall come with this people. What does that mean, for you shall come with this people? It means you're coming together with them. Whereas when God speaks to Joshua, and on the, on the last day of Moses' life is the first time that God speaks directly to Joshua, God says to him, Be strong and resolute, for you shall bring the Israelites into the land that I promised them, and I will be with you. Moses says, you shall go with them. God says to Joshua, no, 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 you're not going with them. You shall bring them. Rashi tells us what that means. Moses said to Joshua, you'll go with them. Why? Because you'll have elders. They'll help you. Follow their advice. They'll be there to guide you. Go, you'll go with them. You'll have a team that's going to help you lead the nation. But the Holy One, blessed is he, said to Joshua, you will bring the Jewish people to the land that I've sworn to them. Continues Rashi, quoting from the Talmud, you'll bring them even if they don't want to come. Everything is up to you. Take your staff and hit them on their heads. There's only one leader for a generation. There are not two leaders for each generation. And the commentaries explain that God and Moses are not disagreeing. These two mandates 
The mandate of Moses, go with the people. The mandate of God, you shall bring the people. They're complementary. Moses is advising Joshua to seek guidance, to seek advice from the elders. And God tells him, yes, you seek advice, but ultimately, you're the sole leader of the nation. You make the final calls. And I think it's interesting looking at this uh, retrospective of this relationship between Moses and Joshua and this transfer of power. There's a certain degree of continuity. For example, part of Moses' death day speech includes a warning about future generations straying from the path. Moses tells the nation, For I know that after my death you will act wickedly and turn away from the path that I have commanded you. And evil will befall you at the end of days, for you have done evil in the eyes of Hashem and angered him through your deeds. Moses is saying that after he dies, he knows, he knows prophetically that the nation will stray. But the question is that after Moses' death, the people did not stray. They only start straying after the death of Joshua. So how can Moses say incorrectly that after I die, you're going to stray from the path? No, no, no. It's only after Joshua dies will the Jewish people stray from the path. The Talmud says something very enlightening. It says that Moses, so long as Joshua was alive, he considered it as if he was still alive. There was this continuity, this unbroken, uninterrupted continuum from Moses to Joshua. He Moses passed. No one missed a beat. Joshua right away, seamlessly filled in. And in Moses' eyes, Moses finally died when Joshua died. They were like one person. In fact, the Talmud has a whole question. Who wrote the last eight verses of the Torah? Because Moses dies, and then there's eight verses after Moses dies. So who wrote those words? So the Talmud brings a debate. According to one opinion, Moses wrote it while he was crying, because he was forced to write his own eulogy, which is a very sad thing to do. According to the second opinion of the Talmud, Joshua wrote it. And I think it's more than just we need someone who's an efficient and writes neatly to write the Torah, to complete Moses' work. I think maybe the underlying message is, again, like when Joshua's alive, Moses is alive. They were so inseparable. They were so aligned that really it's like Moses wrote the whole thing. Because even if Joshua wrote it, well, what did Joshua know? Everything that Joshua knew, he got from Moses. And therefore, there's this seamless continuity and this continuum connecting the Jewish people from leader to leader from Moses to Joshua. On the other hand, we read about a tremendous difference between Moses and Joshua. The Talmud tells us that when the elders of the nation, they saw Joshua, they started crying. And they would say, the face of Moses was like the face of the sun. The face of Joshua, that's like the face of the moon. Woe to a generation that has this tremendous drop in leadership. And I think this really highlights the dual elements of Joshua vis-a-vis Moses. On one hand, he's like the moon. All he is doing is reflecting and mirroring Moses. He is the consummate student. Everything that he has, all that he has, comes directly from Moses. But it also shows us that there's, there's, there's a big difference. The sun originates the light. The moon only reflects it. Moses is this otherworldly beacon. Josh was an incredible leader, but not someone as transcendental as Moses. When the elders of the generation, when they see that, they would lament. Woe for this embarrassment, woe for this disgrace, that we did not merit another leader in the stature of Moses. Even though there was this seamless transition, there was still significant downgrade. The Talmud goes on to tell us that in the days of the mourning 
of Moses in the 30 days following Moses' passing, there was a wide-scale forgetting of a huge chunk of Torah. 3,000 laws were forgotten. Once they don't have Moses, he's the greatest Torah scholar, there were questions that were raised and no one knew the answer. And the people ran to Joshua. They said to him, ask heaven, go knock on God's door and find out what the answer to these questions are. And Joshua responds, no, the Torah is not in the heavens. We have to figure this out on our own. The Talmud continues with a similar teaching. This time they explain the reason why there was such a mass forgetting of Torah. When Moses was about to pass, he brought in Joshua and he said to him, any question that you have, you can ask me now before I depart. And Joshua responded, my Rebbe, my teacher, was there even a second that I abandoned you and I went to a different place? Did you not write as you did in chapter 33, verse 11, as it says in the Torah, and Joshua, Moses' Moses' attendant, did not depart from amidst the tent? Right away, after Joshua made that statement, his strength waned and he forgot 300 laws. In addition, he had 700 new doubts that arose. And when the people found out that their new leader is no Moses, they started to gang up on him. They wanted to kill him. And the mighty right away distracted them with a war. As we'll see, once Joshua becomes the undisputed leader, right away they cross the Jordan and right away they begin the conquest of Israel. And this, I think, again, shows this duality of the relationship between Joshua and Moses. Joshua claimed he doesn't need to resolve any doubts on Torah matters with Moses before Moses passes because since the Exodus, Joshua never left aside. And therefore, whatever Moses knew, Joshua knew too. This implies that Joshua was on par with Moses and that caused him to forget hundreds, maybe even thousands of laws. And here we're seeing these these dual elements of Joshua's character. On one hand, he's the paragon of committed apprenticeship. He's the exemplar of a student. Wherever Moses went, Joshua accompanied. Wherever Moses taught, Joshua studied and learned. Yet Joshua was no Moses. And this drop was immediately felt after Moses passed. Joshua is going to be faced with a tremendous responsibility. He has a nation that, as we've seen, is somewhat volatile. They could be set off uh, very easily, apparently. And he's now tasked with crossing over the Jordan, with entering very hostile territory, conquering a vast land with all kinds of entrenched armies, entrenched kingdoms. And as we will find out in part two of our study of Joshua, that he was indeed up for the task of doing this.